Father, guard our hearts this morning and guide our minds. Father, direct our speech so that the Holy Spirit would be the one speaking. And with the word open before us, Father, prick our hearts if that be the need and convict us of our sin. Drive us, Father, into the direction that most conforms to the likeness of your Son, for that is the purpose and the word being given, Father, that we would know your Son and be like him. We ask, Father, that uh, as we listen to your word this morning, that our hearts and minds would be trained to listen and obey, to put aside distraction, to uh, open our hearts and minds to what you would choose to speak. And perhaps if uh, necessary, Father, set aside things. We may have come in here believing or knowing if it's contrary to what your word provides. But in all things, Father, giving you the glory for what you may do in our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, for this morning and give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. One night in 1903, after delivering a sermon on the sympathy of Jesus and all of his ability to comfort and and provide sympathy to those who were hurting, a man named Frederick Booth Tucker, who was uh, fairly well known in his day as a pastor and a preacher, after he delivered that sermon, he was approached by a man who had been rather unimpressed with what he had heard. And he'd come up to uh, Frederick afterward and he said, if your wife had just died like mine has just died, he declared, and your babies were crying for their mother, you would never come back here and say what you're saying now about the sympathy of Jesus. Incredibly, just a few days later, this is a true story, Tucker's own wife was killed in a train wreck. And her body was brought back to Chicago and carried to the very same church for her service, her internment service. And her husband, the bereaved preacher, delivered the funeral message for his own wife. And as he as the story goes, gazed into his wife's silent stare in the coffin and delivered this uh, eulogy, he began by saying, the other day a man told me I wouldn't speak of sympathy if my wife had just died. He said, if that man is here, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient. It's in those moments, trials like that, that we really understand that Christ is sufficient. It's the crucible, it's that moment in our life that really comes to define for us what it means to be a Christian. What our faith really amounts to in our lives. Nothing tests the faith of a Christian quite so much as a trial of this sort. But I don't know that we really need a trial of this sort. In other words, if I were to ask you what a trial looks like in your life, I think it's quite often the case that we would go to moments like this. A death, perhaps, in our own life, a tragedy of some kind. Perhaps most classically, we talk about persecution. I don't know how many Christians are like me in this way, but have you imagined what you would do in the moment should persecution break out and you were put in the spot where you had to repudiate your faith or you would be killed? Something tragic like that. Some scene out of a movie that we often imagine, you know. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who are put in that very place every day around the world. But we wonder, what would I do in that moment? That would be the moment when I would be able to show the world that I truly believe. Well, that may be true, and I, God, God forbid we ever be placed in that position, I, rel- I realize it may be true that that would be a moment for us to show our faith. But what if a moment like that never occurs in our life? Are we to say then that we never have a trial, we never have an opportunity to confess our faith in that way? Or is God routinely placing those opportunities in our path? But maybe we don't recognize them. In the letter that we've been studying here in First Peter, Peter, I think, as the author, understood that trials come along when you don't expect them in ways you're not prepared necessarily to handle. Maybe ways you never imagined you'd actually ever face. And as we began our study last week, we, knew, we noticed that 
his readers had a problem, he felt, in their perspective about their faith. And that problem they had, that perspective they lacked, put them in the position to not only fail to recognize trial for what it was, but to not respond properly to that trial. So the letter, as it gave the readers instruction, likewise, I would argue, gives us instruction on how we're to be prepared for those very same trials. Let's just take a brief moment and I'll review where we've been. He opened in chapter 1, if you remember, describing the reader's faith from three vantage points. Three vantage points. I can sum them up very simply. Past, present, and future. Our faith, our salvation in Christ has three qualities to it. A past quality, a present quality, and a future. And with each vantage point, Peter gave the reader something to cherish about that faith. Something to grab hold on. Something to appreciate. Something to recognize just how special being a Christian is. To build some perspective, in other words. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pause there. He ends the second of the two vantage points with that passage of Scripture. Last week, we remember, we started in verse 3, and we read, we read verse 3 through 5. That was the first vantage point, looking at the future of our salvation. Remember what we said last week? It was this view of our permanent, imperishable future reward that awaits the believer, the inheritance that our Father has reserved for His children in heaven, where it sits, even now, waiting for us. And those, that inheritance we know Scripture describes generally as gifts of reward for our obedience and service to Him now. It could be rewards of authority. In fact, Scripture talks plainly about those of us in the faith ruling with Christ, positions of honor dictated by our trustworthiness with what He's given us to do now. Think of this as your internship. You know, if you ever had an internship with a company, the hardest working person in the company is an intern. Because what they're trying desperately to do is to prove their worth for the permanent position they seek in that company. You're in an internship right now. Now, the fundamental difference in my example and what Scripture says, of course, is you're not trying to earn your entrance into heaven. In fact, in this particular internship, you don't even get to be an intern but by faith. But having become this intern now, you have, through the rest of your life on this earth, an opportunity to earn the privilege and reward God is prepared to merit to those who show Him they are trustworthy. Those who are faithful in a little now will be faithful with much later, Scripture says. Not your salvation, but those opportunities He has reserved for those who would rule with Christ in the age to come. I also want to suggest that there could be substantive reward, that there is some potential of material. Now, I I can't go any deeper than Scripture provides in that realm, and Scripture gives virtually nothing for us to go on. I think by design, so as not to get us off track too far in our attention, but I also don't want you to think that the future, as Scripture describes it, is harps and angels with wings and clouds and ethereal things and nothing substantive and nothing real. That's not the future that Christ describes in Revelation. The world we will inhabit is a real physical world with Christ ruling in a physical way on earth for a thousand years. The tribes ruled by the twelve apostles. The Gentile nations ruled by the church saints who have come back resurrected into new form. That is the world. It's that way for a thousand years. There is government. There is commerce. 
The Old Testament is replete with descriptions of what life is like in that millennial reign that we know is coming. A real, substantive world with real people living in it, ruled by Christ. Amen. And we're there. And we're now at that place where God has given us graciously the opportunity to show our worth for His trust in that future opportunity. So that's the future reward. And it was always spoken of, as Peter described it in those short verses, in this permanent, solid way, dependable, imperishable, not changing. The passage we began this morning, then, was this second reality of our salvation, the second vantage point, the vantage point of the present nature. Not the future now, but the present, the world we live in today. And if the future holds reward, the present, we're told, seems to hold trials. That's not such good news, it appears to our ears. Well, in the case of these readers, it was certainly the truth. They were the church, as we described last week in the Diaspora, this is the region of Asia Minor outside of Judea, where many Christians live, both Jewish Christian as well as Gentile Christian. And it put them in a place where they were under persecution. In the earliest decades of the church, they were actually persecuted by the Jews. That became later persecution under Roman uh, emperor uh, authority, but in the end it was persecution for many, many decades in the early church. What a strange means of encouraging his readers. Don't you agree? He wants to encourage them. He wants to help them along this road of obedience. And he says, your future holds great things, but your present holds trials. That is the current, present nature of your salvation. Perhaps Peter knows something here about the spiritual benefits of trials. Remember the man who denied Christ three times? The man who eventually rose to prominence in the church because of his faithfulness? I think he knows something about what a trial might do in strengthening faith, don't you think? In the verses we read this morning, start with verse 6. I want you to observe something here. Here he goes into the description of these uh, current day trials using words that are temporary. Remember the contrast from last week. Although our future reward is so permanent and assured, our current trials, he says, from our vantage point today should be seen as anything but permanent. Verse 4, if you remember, he said imperishable, unfading, reserved in heaven. But look in contrast to what he says here in verse 6. Temporary, brief, if only for a little while. We said last week, the reason we can say our trials in this life are brief are not necessarily because trials only come and go once in a while. They may last our whole life. But rather because our life is brief. In contrast to eternity, I don't care how long you live on this earth, it's brief, by definition. And therefore, no matter what comes upon you in this life, must, by definition, be brief. What's temporary is what we experience here today. What's permanent is the unseen reality of the eternal realm. That is, in part, what makes being a Christian so novel. The world is invested in this world, and all that they have any trust or hope in is right before their eyes. We, meanwhile, come with the message of the Gospel, which says, this is nothing. This burns up one day. Invest in it, and you'll be burned up too. What we hope for is eternal. That's where our investment lies. That's where our mind and our eyes are set. And therefore, we put little stock in this world. In fact, we would just as soon be removed from this world, the sooner the better, by God's grace. And then in the eternal, that's where the lasting things are. That's the vantage point difference that Peter wants this group of readers to have in their mind, that vantage point that they need to have, that perspective. The heart of Peter's point is in, it begins in verse 7. The heart of what he's saying in this message is in, in, in this passage is in verse 7. He draws this comparison between our faith, our faith itself, and gold. Now, gold was the most valuable commodity in Peter's day. And it is still a very valuable commodity today, although you, all, you and I know that we have since found things in our world that we 
consider more valuable. I know it was a fad there for a while for people to get their credit card upgraded to gold. Then everyone had gold, so that's not special anymore. So now what is it? Platinum, you know, beryllium. I don't know where they're going next, but it's something unique and different and, and, and rare. But we still use a very interesting phrase. We still say the gold standard, don't we? Speaks of a monetary issue, I know, but it's still the phrase. We don't talk about the platinum standard, do we? The gold standard. And in Peter's day, gold was the gold standard. There was nothing more valuable he could have used to compare faith to. And he says, though gold is valuable, he says that in, in reality, faith is far more valuable than gold. Faith is far more valuable. Now, again, if you're seeing this with eyes for this world, if you're thinking that, no, wait a minute, Steve, if I had the choice between faith and gold, it'd be a hard choice to make. Only if your eyes are focused on this world. Because do you know what? Faith in this world is of very little value to anybody outside of those who understand the gospel, of course. But gold, universal value. But to who? To this world alone. It's all a matter of where your eyes have perspective. Do you have eyes for eternity or do you have eyes for the here and now? Gold, as valuable as it is, perishes at the end of this age. But faith, we're told in the passage I just read, brings about the salvation of your souls, which we know is an eternal commodity. Here again, how is the Bible measuring worth? What is the biblical measuring stick of worth? It has to be on the time scale of eternity. He says, your faith is more precious than even gold. Why? Because gold doesn't last, your faith will. So when you look at your life, when I look at our, my life, and I, I see this biblical principle represented in the pages of Scripture, it forces me, and I hope it does the same for you, it forces me to ask a question of myself. As I look around my life and the things I've placed value on in my life, have I placed value according to the measuring stick of Scripture? If you were to ask me to list those things in my life that are valuable to me, would that list compare favorably against what Scripture itself says I should have as my list of valuables? Do I measure with the right stick? Am I measuring against this standard of eternity, in other words? It will be impossible for Peter's readers, and I think for us as well, to successfully weather the trials that come along in our life so long as our eyes remain focused on the temporal rather than on the eternal. Because if you see your safety and if you see your security and your peace and your happiness and your contentment coming from, originating out of this world and anything in this world, and you can look down the list in your own mind, your job, your home, your possessions in general, even your relationships, to include, frankly, even your family relationships. If those things are the things you believe are the most valuable things to you, they will drive your decision-making. You will make decisions to preserve those things. But on the other hand, if you understand by the measuring stick of Scripture that those things have temporal value, yes, but they never can or could eclipse those things that have eternal value. They must always take a second place to those things that are eternal, then when the hard decisions of life come along, you'll have the right measuring stick. You will decide, I should do this or I shouldn't do that. I should buy this or I shouldn't buy that. I should take this job or not. I, I will always make decisions based on the eternal measuring stick, which is what? How is it glorifying the Lord through me? And how is it demonstrating to Him that I am worthy of His trust, that I have taken the little He's given me here in terms of decisions and authority, and made the most of it so that in the future he can look upon me as a good and faithful servant and say, you were faithful with a little, you will be faithful with much. That's the eternal. Because long after this is all gone, that's all that will remain. 
You, we will not, and Peter's readers will not be able to weather those storms with the right attitude, no, much less the right decisions, as long as their perspective is temporal rather than eternal. In fact, Peter's next point rests entirely on the need for his readers to have eyes for eternity. In his next point, in this heart of the passage, he says, our trials are proof of our faith. Did you catch that? Look in verse 6. Peter says his readers were distressed by various trials. And then in verse 7, he says, these trials are so the proof of their faith may be revealed. First, Peter says that trials provide an opportunity for proof of your faith. I think that's inherent in the way he sets up these two verses. That the mere fact that you're placed in this trial, this crucible, gives opportunity for proof of our faith. You may remember last week, I can't even remember for sure if I mentioned this, but last week I think I meant to mention that the word trial, as it's used here in the Greek, talks specifically about an external activity that comes upon us. It's a word that's used in the Greek exclusively for this sense of something that comes at me. Not something I produce for myself. And what do I mean? Well, for example, if I were to leave this church and go speeding down uh, the parkway and get pulled over by a policeman and get a ticket, I would not have freedom to sit in that car and say, yep, here's one of those trials again. Or it may be a trying circumstance, but it's not the kind of trial Peter's talking about. You did that to yourself. I did that to myself. That's, that's different. That's a consequence of our sin. And yes, that's a trial in itself and we still have the, uh, a necessity to respond the right way. But nonetheless, it's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about those things that happen in your life that from your vantage point, you don't know why they've happened. You can't explain it. You wish it wouldn't. You, you, you feel persecuted. You feel unfairly treated by, by the world. But whatever, that's the kind of trial that Peter's talking about here. These external opportunities to prove our faith. And here's what he means specifically. He means that our response to that trial reveals the character of our faith. Now, before we understand what he's saying here, let's be clear on what he's not saying. Because it'd be very easy to read into these verses something that is not intended by the author. Peter is not saying that the trial creates faith, or brings us to faith, or increases our faith as if we're growing along some continuum toward salvation. The Bible is utterly clear about this, absolutely and consistently clear. Faith is not measured on a continuum. You are either a believer in Christ or you are not. You are either saved or you are not. There is no in-between. Let me give you some examples. Romans 10.9 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you are close. Not, okay, you're halfway there, good start, got a few more things on the list. You will be saved. John says, or Jesus says this in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Those are definitive words. There's no, there's no ambiguity there, and there's certainly no qualification given in those words. Remember the poor jailer in, the, in chapter 16 of Acts, just to give you another quick example. He was there when the jail was rocked by the earthquake and the doors flew open and he thought he'd lost all his prisoners and he was afraid he was going to die. And then miraculously he discovers Peter and his friends are still there. That led him to this moment of sort of examination of himself and God used that moment to speak to his heart and prompted him to ask a question about salvation. And here's what he said to Peter. He said, Sirs, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. 
He took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. This is the joy of a man who's been saved. Not the joy of a man who knows he's a step closer to salvation. And look at what Peter, Peter, or Paul's response was. Believe in the Lord, you will be saved. So we are not at this point in Peter's letter looking at a formula for obtaining salvation or maturing into salvation. Those things are not biblical concepts. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So if that's true, if we understand what Scripture teaches on that point, we know that salvation is a point moment, not a continuum in the life of a believer. Then what does it mean that a trial has some impact to grow or in, other, in some other way affect the character of our faith. What are we really saying is taking place then? There's only really two effects that make sense given what Scripture says. On the one hand, a trial can reveal that we are not truly a believer. A trial, uh, think of it from the standpoint of refining something by fire. If I take metal ore and I put it through a furnace to try to refine it, the pure stuff remains, the dross the, the impurities are burned off and taken away. Similarly, a trial can be used to show who truly believes what they say they believe. Because I'll tell you, it's real easy to confess Christ and to carry out the, the, the trappings of Christianity, the, the facade of Christianity, when everything's going easy. But when you think about it, I mean, our standards are really pretty low. You show up and say you're a believer, you're in the club, have a seat, here's the program. Now, I'm not saying we should put them through a long test, and you, know, you understand what I'm saying. Really, how do we know? The Lord knows, fair enough, but how do we know? And, and if we know, it will come in the midst of some trial where it's no longer convenient to be a Christian. It's no longer profitable to be a Christian. It's no longer fun and joyful and easy to be a Christian. Now it's hard and it's challenging and it calls for sacrifice and it calls for us to put up with things we don't like. Well, then you'll know who's here for the right reason. That's one of the reasons why the Gospels have been um, uh, taken to be so accurate and so truthful and so uh, believable. It's because the men who wrote them went to their death over what they said was true. If this was a hoax, if this was somebody's made-up idea, you don't go to your death over a hoax. You don't conspire with other men to come up with some cockamamie story and then when people start throwing you in jail and cutting your heads off, you don't hold to the story under those circumstances. You say, oh, sorry, we were joking, just just a joke. But when you go to your death over it, you believe it. And that's what, faith, that's what a trial does. It reveals, in some cases, the false believer, the false confessor. It separates light from dark. The other way that a trial then can work in the believer's life is to strengthen our hope and our reliance on that faith that we have. So on the one hand, it can reveal the unbeliever. On the other hand, it can help strengthen the believer's own recognition of their faith and their reliance on that faith in their decision-making. So in the first case, you have a trial revealing the unbeliever as a pretender. And in the second case, you have a trial confirming the presence of faith in the doubter. In the Christian who may not be aware of just how solid this rock is that they have set their hope on. Remember how James began his challenging letter in James chapter 1, verse 2? Remember he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says you've got to have joy over those trials. Joy. Because the trial has tested our faith, and testing is a good thing. Here's another lesson for a teenager or a school-age kid. Testing is good. Testing is a good thing. 
And I think it works very much the same way in an academic setting as it does academic setting as it is working here in Scripture. Unless you take the test, you don't know what you know. And if the point of learning the material is to benefit you in life, do you want to leave school not knowing what you should know? Because eventually the test will come. If it doesn't come in school, it'll come on the job, it'll come somewhere. And if you don't know what you're supposed to know, you fail that test, it's a bad thing. What test could possibly be more important than the test of our faith? How would you like to show up on Judgment Day only to find out, as some, Jesus tells us, will find out, they're not believers? Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We saw you teaching in the streets. We fed you. We ate with you. Away with me, I did not know you. Those are people who never experienced the test of their faith and ever realized they don't believe what they have thought it takes to become saved. Testing is a good thing. There's only one thing worse than an unbeliever, and that is an unbeliever who doesn't know that they're an unbeliever. James says our faith, having been tested, will lead us to confidence and to hope just as gold is purified through fire. We're going to develop that confidence in our faith and that endurance as we walk with the Lord through trials. He says it's going to result in us ultimately lacking nothing. In James's letter, I want to just mention one other thing out of his letter. He uses an example of somebody who I hope you, you know, Abraham, but yet who you may not appreciate in how God used trials in his life to grow him. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God declares Abraham to be righteous, and James mentions this in passing at the end of his second chapter, that there was a moment when God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed in that promise despite the impossibility of it, that he would have a child long after his wife was past childbearing years. Because he believed, God says in chapter 15, 6, Abraham was righteous. Not by his work, but by his faith. He was righteous in that moment. Now, if you were to study what happens in the chapters that follow Abraham, do you know what you find in Abraham's life? Well, first... He tries to make his own heir through another relationship with Hagar. Remember that? And then later in the next chapter, he goes to Egypt out of fear that he's going to die of a famine. And then while he's in Egypt, he lies and tells everyone that his wife is actually his sister so that he won't have himself killed. But of course, that puts his wife in jeopardy. She ends up being taken into the harem of the pharaohs in Egypt. Nice guy. Then after that, when Isaac does come along, his true son by the promise... Abraham allows his wife to mistreat Hagar in an attempt to get Hagar and Ishmael out of the home and sends them off running for their lives. Not a very responsible patriarch in that respect. So if you looked at chapter after chapter after chapter from the moment he was declared righteous by faith, what proof do you have that this man is righteous in any real sense? Or that God is at work in his heart in any real sense? The guy's a wreck. All right, well, it's easy for me to say here and now, but, you know, I won't say that when I see him. But... You know, in the, in, the, in the years he lived shortly after that, and 20, 30 years afterward, he doesn't really reflect a very godly man in many of his decisions, at least not what's reflect, reflected in the pages of Scripture, right? And then came chapter 22. And James says this about that chapter. If you know chapter 22, he takes Isaac to the mountain with the intent to sacrifice him as God had declared he would do. Would you call that a trial, by the way? This is what James says about that in chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, faith was working with his works. As a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now this 
part of James's letter has caused a lot of controversy and a lot of difficulty in the church over the years. Uh, Martin Luther himself particularly struggled with this because in his experience, rebelling against some of the false teachings in the Catholic Church at his day, he then had to turn around and deal with a passage that seemed to run counter to what he was trying to teach in the church, which is you are saved by faith, not by works. Uh, and he wrestled with this, and many in, in the church have in years past. You only have to understand Abraham's life, though, to understand why James said what he said. The word fulfilled literally means perfected or kind of shown publicly is another way to use that word. He says very clearly, the statement in chapter 15 that he was righteous was fulfilled in his behavior in chapter 22. Now, are we saying that he wasn't saved until chapter 22? No, not at all. Not at all. Fulfilled here means what God declared to be true in chapter 15 was finally evident, made visible, made known to those who were watching, and by extension, us in the Scripture, looking at Scripture. It was finally made known in chapter 22. That if you had not had chapter 22, you and I could have sat back and looked at Abraham's life and said, you know, I know it says he was righteous, but God, it's hard to see that, isn't it? Now, he was righteous. He's like you and I. I'm often fond of telling people that the day after I was saved, I looked an awful lot like I did the day before. In fact, if you'd been looking closely, you may not have been able to tell that anything had changed. And even the next day, and maybe the next month, and maybe the next year. Now, at some point, Scripture says the fruit of our salvation will be evident. And so there was change. And I can clearly look back now and I can see the change that God has done in my life. But nonetheless, it took time. And it took trials. And it took God challenging me at points along that way to make the right decision. And it took opportunity for Him to convict me of sin and draw me to a different place. You know the process if you're a believer. And in light of what we see going on here in Peter's letter, in James's letter, and referencing back to Abraham's life, the pattern is always the same. God needed Abraham to have the mountain experience so that Abraham had the testimony to verify what God had already done in his heart. That by his new life in Christ, by his faith in God's Word, he was a different man willing to do things by God's Word that he wouldn't have done otherwise. And yet he was still an imperfect man. By the way, have you stopped to consider what it would mean in your life if you never experienced any trials as a testing of your faith? It might sound good. I mean, I think we're all up to maybe signing up for that just to see what it's like, right? Look what James says. He says, count it as joy when you receive trials. So by natural extension, by logical extension, if it's joy to have trials, what would it mean not to have trials? Well, less joy. Less joy. Now, that doesn't make sense. To our way of thinking, intuitively, that makes no sense. And yet, from a scriptural point of view, that's exactly the truth. Because it is ultimately in what the trial produces in our life that real joy is found. Even if the moment of the trial doesn't seem very joyful. James himself said that. I want you to turn with me just a few chapters back or pages back in your Bible to the book of Hebrews because there's an important concept that Peter himself is about to introduce in this passage. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. I want you to turn to chapter 12, verse 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Listen to this passage out of Hebrews. For consider him, talking of course about Christ, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is, a, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and then we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see how this dovetails into what James is saying, what Peter is saying? He begins, the writer here begins by quoting out of Proverbs, where it says that we should receive the discipline of the Lord as a son would receive the discipline of their earthly father. And he says it's not just a good thing, it's an essential thing. It's an absolutely essential thing. It is for discipline, and I believe in this context, discipline and trials are largely synonymous. It is for the case of discipline that we endure. If we understand discipline, we will desire it. If we understand it. You know, if I had preached this 200 years ago, I don't think anybody in here would have had any question about the value and the purpose of discipline that would have been a yawner. Let's just move on. Got the point. Maybe that's the case here again today. But, you know, in today's world, that's not always the case. We, are, we live in a society which is largely lost respect for or appreciation for biblical discipline. Biblical discipline. I don't mean the kind that the world now views as discipline, but true biblical discipline, which takes into account the necessity of suffering in the short term for the benefits that long-term discipline brings. And an understanding that that is the absolutely most loving thing that a father can do to his children. And more importantly, if you were to live a Christian life from birth to death, and never experienced God's discipline, guess what? You're not a believer. You're an illegitimate son. Illegitimate here. The word in, in the Greek literally means bastard. Not to get anybody worked up over that, but it's a technical term. It means a child who knows who their mother is, but doesn't know who their father is. Now, they have a father. That's obvious enough. But they don't know who their father is. So they go up to some man and claim that man to be their father in the hope of finding a father, but that would make them illegitimate to that father. They're not the legitimate son of that father. They're illegitimate. So according to Scripture, if we've not experienced God's discipline in our lives, which means the trials that come upon us in our faith, then we have concern about whether we may be illegitimate. As an illegitimate child, we're saying, we have claimed him as our father, though he's not. I want you to consider all the things a father can do for their child. Just a short list. I can feed my children, right? I can clothe them. I can protect them from harm. I can teach them. I can play with them. I can take care of them when, I'm sick, when they're sick, right? There's, the list would go on and on, right? Do you know the one thing that only the real parent of a child can do is discipline? I mean, I could take this child and I could do all those things I just listed and that child would probably receive them gladly, could he not? I don't know him. He's not my son, but I could feed him. He'd take the food. I could clothe him. If you needed the clothing, you'd take the clothes. I could take him out for an ice cream, right? I could teach him something. I could sit down and read to him. We could go to the ball games together. I can do virtually anything you want to name to that boy, and he will receive it, though I'm not his father. But try to spank him, ground him, he won't receive it. And in this culture, I'd probably be arrested for trying. <laughs> right? So the Bible defines fatherhood in many ways, but the one distinguishing quality of true fatherhood that cannot be falsified or counterfeited is discipline. 
You know, in today's world, we have a lot of blended families, folks who have fathers from another marriage, husbands, wives from another marriage. If you're in a situation where you're a stepfather in a new marriage, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's easy to buy your way in. It's easy to give the child the good things and to sit there and spend time with them. But you will know when you have finally become that child's father in their eyes, the moment you can discipline them and they will receive that discipline. That's the biblical standard of fatherhood. If we are to accept trials with a biblical point of view, then we have to accept them in the joy that they bring because it's a recognition that we have a loving Father who cares enough for us to take time to discipline us, and it's proof of our faith. So not only does a trial produce the opportunity for us to demonstrate faith, just the mere fact that trials are coming upon us, biblically-based trials, is in itself proof that we are a child of God. That's how important a trial is to the church. The writer then adds in verse 10 that our earthly fathers did this for a short time, but God does it eternally. There's that perspective again. Did you notice that? The world's perspective is temporary. God's perspective is eternal. There's an important principle here in Hebrews, and as we return now to Peter, there's an important principle being kind of espoused here that's not clear on the pages, and that is this. Let me sum it up this way. Instant gratification is the opposite of God's call in the life of a Christian. If we take as our goal instant gratification and let that reign in our life like it does in our culture, then we're going to completely distort the nature of the Christian life and the Christian experience. So in the case of a trial, what would instant gratification demand? An end to that trial. Now, the fastest way possible. If I'm being persecuted for my faith, well, let's just figure out a way to have a faith that doesn't get persecuted. Or if it's a matter of my job and I'm not getting, you know, if I'm receiving concern from my boss or my employer because I spend too much time at church or because of my Bible study one night of the week or because I happen to talk about my faith in the workplace or whatever. All right, what's the fastest way to step out of that problem? Maybe I need to endure that. Maybe what I need to do, like a child often has to do, is endure the discipline that the Father provides knowing the Father knows best. And that in that discipline, I will receive something much better in the long run than I might obtain in my own power in the short term. And then the last vantage point. Let me introduce you how he goes into the past, just for a moment. Because I know it's easy to understand future. Hey, i got a reward waiting. Cool, i got that. And now that we've gone through it, I hope it's understandable that we have to have trials and we have to have God disciplining us in the meantime. That that will define the nature of our faith in the present. Okay, that makes some sense, I hope. But a past? My faith doesn't have past. I mean, why would you go into the past to talk about my present experience of my faith? So that you can have perspective. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look little perspective here on what's, on what's come before. He begins the phrase here, the, the, the passage with this phrase, as to this salvation. It's very important because he's moved outside of the individual now to the corporate. He's not saying as to your personal salvation. He's saying as to this plan that God has put together for salvation. Speaking of God's redemptive plan, let me talk to you a little bit about that plan, about the fact that God has worked so carefully to bring you to this place. The prophets of the Bible, he says, spoke prophetically of a coming grace 
through the Messiah. Now, you all know the prophets. You're thinking primarily of the, old, the major and minor prophets in the Old Testament, and certainly that's in view here, but it's not limited to those men. Abel was a prophet, we're told, the first prophet. Noah was a prophet of righteousness, we're told by Peter. There are other men in all of time that God used to speak prophetically to their generation, not all of whom had the benefit or the need to write down what they spoke so that we would know it. God, in His uh, wisdom and in His omniscience, determined what we would know through His Word. But he wasn't limited to that. And he spoke to other men in other ages. But all of them, whoever you might mention, all of the prophets of old, were given some measure of understanding of what was coming. And in that understanding, we're told, they were also given revelation to know that what they were being given wasn't for them, nor for their generation, per se. When Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, gives the nation of Israel all this insight about a new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and 32... It was given not so that the nation in his day would understand it and receive it. Well, self-evidently they didn't. But that they would still be judged by it. And then ultimately the church today and in the generations that have come before us and yet are to come would benefit from having that revelation in Scripture. Because now from our vantage point, we can look back in the prophets and we can read in the Psalms. We can read in Isaiah. We can read in Jeremiah. We can read things that now from where we sit clearly tell us Jesus was the Messiah clearly give us the proof we need to know who to place our trust in. And God had prepared all of that for the church, for you and I. Now, we are not exclusively those who are saved. The Old Testament had believers by faith, obviously. There will be men who come to faith after the church has left the earth in the rapture. We know that from Revelation. But it is the case that we are the bride of Christ, not the Old Testament saints, not the tribulation saints. The bride of Christ is the church. Those who ushered in at Pentecost, those who will leave at the rapture and all that have lived between. That's a miraculous period of time in God's economy. We uniquely have that opportunity by God's grace. And there were men who lived decades, centuries, and millennia ago who lived their lives unto persecution and death in many cases just to give us the opportunity to know what we know and to be a part of the faith that we have. Does that give you a perspective So as you sit in a moment of trial, as you have a bad day tomorrow at work, perhaps, consider what God has put together in all of eternity so that you could have a hope. And then move your eyes off the temporal and put them on the eternal. Consider what it is that He has done for us. The ultimate purpose of those prophecies was in how it would draw men to Christ after Christ's death. The second thing he says to end today, Peter says, these prophets searched the Spirit of Christ that lived within them, that is the Holy Spirit, who gave them the utterances and gave them the revelation that they wrote down, they searched that same Spirit. I think that's uh, an artful way of saying they asked a lot of prayerful questions of what they were hearing from God. And they asked specifically to know who this Messiah would be and when He would arrive. They longed to know what you got to know. They only wished they could be sitting in this seat right now. They are in heaven with Christ now. We know that. But that doesn't mean there wasn't something special and honored honored about being a part of what we have been given opportunity to be a part of. It doesn't mean they didn't long for something they didn't get. We have something they always wanted to know. And in fact, Peter says specifically that one of the concerns they had in their longing was to reconcile something that made no sense to them. How is it that the Messiah will come and die and come and reign? How is it that the king is also the one put to death? How do these two work together? They never did figure that out. The Old Testament view, the Jews before Christ's coming, never did quite understand what it was that the Scriptures were saying 
about this need for the Messiah to both die and reign, to have glory and suffering. They couldn't put the two together. We now see it. We, again, have the privilege to understand God's redemptive plan. We take that for granted, and I know we all do because it's what we've grown up with. The scripture here, and Peter particularly, is trying to give us the perspective that before you jettison this faith that you claim in the midst of a trial, consider what God did to bring it to you in the first place and the privilege that comes with that. Next week, we enter into a new section. And that new section does what all Scripture needs to do in our hearts, and that is ask the question, so what? All right, great, I've got a future reward, nice to know. Yeah, I've got trials, I understand, I'm looking forward to that too. Oh, and then there is the past to consider, I know that's made me a very special person in God's plan, thank you Steve for that. So what? The so what of Scripture picks up in verse 13. You will respond, we must respond to that faith, because that is the expectation God had in providing us this letter. And Peter, no differently in his day, will place upon the church an expectation of response. Having provided the background, I just want you to be prepared next week and in the weeks to come. The conviction stick of the Holy Spirit may pop out at any moment. (laughs) And you may get beaten around the head with it a little bit. That's okay. That's what Scripture does. And we're going to move through this chapter into the next chapter with a good deal more pace because now with that foundation, we'll be in a better position to understand what Peter's providing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. And I'll close this and uh, hand back over the, the pulpit as necessary to the, to the elders. Dear Heavenly Father, as we open Your Word each week and we are challenged by what we read, Father, we come face to face with the impossibility of living out Your expectations for holiness. It's just impossible, Father. We know that. It was impossible before we came to faith and it truly is no less impossible now but by Your Holy Spirit in us. Father, we are grateful that by faith you have brought us into your family. Nothing we could say or do could possibly equal the grace you've shown us. But we try, Father. We try in our own effort by the power of the Holy Spirit to somehow, some way, reflect that grace and that glory through us to others. Not to the point of achieving perfection. Rather, Father, just in an honest attempt to bring the glory back to you as you deserve it. Thank you, Father, for the word this morning as it may give us reason to go forward from today and face trials and to live out our Christian witness, Father, knowing that by these trials you are disciplining us for good purposes. And in that growth, perhaps, Father, we would be seen worthy of greater honor and and responsibility in the age to come. We ask for the strength to live up to your expectations. We ask for the guidance, Father, to make the right choices. I pray for this fellowship, Father, as we leave today that you would continue to grow and guide it in this time, that you would bring it, Father, to the place you have reserved for it, and that uh, you would allow it, Father, to serve you in many ways in many years to come. In this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.